Welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. I'm Simon Delarue and with me today here at the Guernsey Press uh, the Bray Road Industrial Estate are uh, two guests who I've invited along to talk about the issues of the day. And uh, my first guest is Deputy Sasha Kazantseva-Miller. She uh, stood in the election in 2020, winning 9,016 of your votes, finishing 16th out of 119 candidates, and she was subsequently elected to a seat on the Committee for Economic Development and is indeed also on the Development and Planning Authority, also a member, uh, formerly, of the Guernsey Partnership of Independence. Uh, And my other guest today is Andre Austin, who is a director at Swaffers and uh, has been there since 2005. He heads up the local market for the firm. And uh, welcome to both of you to our podcast today. Delighted to be here on the first podcast of the of the year. Hopefully more to come. Yeah, looking forward to it. Great to be here. Welcome to you both. Now, um, you won't be at all surprised to learn that uh, the reason why I've invited the two of you along is because you are obviously very heavily involved in the property market and um, various aspects of it. And our headlines have really been dominated in recent days by uh, this particular issue. Um, In particular, we had, uh, at the beginning of the week, the um, letter in to us here at the Guernsey Press by Deputy Dave Mahoney um, regarding his uh, wishes, plans, uh, thoughts about the Cattell Hospital and King Edward VII site. Um, So, Andre, if I can start with you, um, what would be your assessment of what this island most desperately needs in terms of uh, housing projects and uh, how do you feel about the idea of this site and how it might help things if, if it were to be developed in the way that was spoken about? So if you look at the uh, the demand, it really is at every level of the market. If we're looking at the private, uh, you know, private homes, two, three, four, five bedroom homes, every level of the market, uh, people keep saying to us, you know, all the time, but what's in demand, what do people want? And it is literally everything. Uh, we talk about, you know, first-time buyers, and that's a hugely important area of the market, and it's a very difficult area of the market. It's not just first-time buyers in terms of the demand. It's every level of the market. So, of course, when we saw news of that scheme, uh, earmarking, I think, a mix of properties, that would certainly replicate, you know, the demand that's out there that we are seeing and have been seeing for the last two years and are going to continue to see for the foreseeable future. And um, do you, as an estate agent, have an opportunity, perhaps with other companies around the island, to, to make representation to government about what is out, what is out there and what is required? Is there a, a conduit, a route for you to make your feelings known in this in this way? I mean, not I haven't had any involvement in this, but I have actually um, been working with the um, uh, on a few sort of working parties with the states. Uh, you know, kind of in the last year, and I have to say, the very impressive um, team there, uh, the civil servants, fully aware of the the situation, the issues, and the challenges. Obviously, everyone wants action this day, and it's very, very difficult. Um, but yes, we're able to get uh, across. You know, we're on the coalface. Uh, we've got stats, we can see where the demand is, so we're able to get that across to them. A lot of the, um, probably not, probably the wrong word to sort of say, but if we go back sort of historically, there was a KPMG report back in 2015, and what it identified at the time uh, was a, a, a perhaps a real need for the sort of two-bedroom start homes and first-time kind of homes. 
there was probably a delay in terms of the response to that. Nothing really happened for around sort of 18 months. And then we went through a bit of a stage where certainly the responses we've had anecdotally from things like developers is there was a real emphasis and uh, a real, um, you know, coming back from planning is that they wanted two-bedroom places to sort of be built, which is great and it, and it satisfied a demand. But there's also an argument that actually the bigger homes where there was also demand, we weren't satisfying that. So there's a whole number of issues in relation to housing and stock. But I think that created a little bit of a kind of problem. So actually, it's quite refreshing in some ways, certainly for the market to see a a broader mix of homes, potentially, if it all goes through. And Deputy Kazansa Miller, your your assessment on on this in terms of uh, where the island needs to, uh, which areas of the market the island needs to address, you'll be aware that there's been debate already about the uh, choice of this site for three, four, five bedroom homes with adequate gardens as opposed to um, a stated need from, for example, Deputy Roffey about um, wanting more affordable homes. Your assessment of that? Yes, I think overall it was good to finally hear an update from the property uh, team and Deputy Mahoney because a number of us have been asking for what was happening and it was the first time we've actually received an update. I I think I was quite surprised that uh, our committee signalled an indication where they thought uh, what type of housing should be built because I think, to be honest, I don't think uh, the the mix, the the type of housing should be mandated by committees really or by politicians, especially, to be honest, PNR you know, they don't have the mandate for, for housing. Um, and so I was surprised to see such a specific indication of what they should be like. I was also, on one hand, I, I really think the state should be exploring more uh, public-private partnerships and an approach to work cl- much closer with industry on solving uh, uh, the local issues the communities have. Um, but uh, again, it seemed like certain discussions were already uh, happening. So it looks like certain partners were already predetermined. So I think if we're engaging in public par- partnerships, there should be an open and transparent process so that uh, actually uh, bidders and uh, contractors and suppliers, uh, other stakeholders, stakeholders can get involved on in an open and transparent process. And I guess the other surprise was, which uh, which started really coming up a bit later as the news developed, was uh, the, the suggestions for use on agricultural land. So uh, as, as being a member on planning, uh, we obviously have the island development plan, uh, which provides the guidance of, of where uh, land can be developed. And there are obviously protections around agricultural land. And some of the lands around Katel is also in the agricultural priority areas, which has extra levels of effectively protection. So um, we haven't seen the plans that are being put forward. Uh, uh, it certainly sounds like there is an expectation of the use of agricultural lands, which, I, to, me, to be honest, I think I would question on what grounds this land, the states can decide that this land can be used. Uh, specifically for housing, uh, and especially now that there are, uh, you know, pri- uh, is private interests involved. So I think, I think it's very positive. We are trying to do something with property and the land we have available, but I think there has to be a, a level playing field. Otherwise, the states is jumping the queue compared to how the market can develop, and I actually think it's not really fair for the, the rest of the market.
We should say for context that it became apparent during the uh, Scrutiny Management Committee hearing a couple of days ago that um, although the letter to the Guernsey Press uh, from Deputy Dave Mahoney spelling out what was wanted here, um, it, it was from, from him personally, it, was, it had been discussed, it was revealed by the committee and uh, they were all aware of, of, of it beforehand. But um, we, you've uh, drawn a conclusion there that they are already quite a long way down the road of developing ideas with um, private enterprises, but that's speculation on our part, isn't it? I just know what I know from, from the press, to be honest, uh, from, from the media, to be honest, because we, we have no further information than what has been released in that letter. Um, on the face of what's been proposed, Andre Austin, um, how much of an impact can a development like that make on the market? Um, is it, you know, if you've got a spectrum between it being a drop in the ocean and it solving all the problems, I mean, where, where does it sit on, along, those, along that spectrum? Unfortunately, it's not going to solve um, the problems uh, because, of, you know, the numbers that they were talking about, 90 homes there. So it's, it's a bit more than a drop in the ocean, but it's, uh, you know, it's not a huge gain. It's, it's, I think anything that's, you know, uh, helping towards providing more housing stock is, is going to be a positive thing. Perhaps it's the stimulus for, for other things, because Sasha touched on it, um, actually. It's very interesting that they're looking at a JV um, for this, because I think, Sasha, I think you've been crying out for this for a long time, I think probably with your sort of business kind of background. There's always a question for a lot of us is why has this not happened before? And I think, um, and, you know, it's early stages. We don't know how that's quite going to kind of work. But there is, when, it, when you have sort of states' assets, there's an expectation, I think, from the vast majority of the public to realise the very best in terms of value, whatever they are. And that would seem a pretty good way to sort of go about it. But there's so many different areas that you can develop this as well. So it'd be interesting how that's going to pan out um, because... I think quite a few of us have been calling for that for a while because we think it's the best way to maximise value. Um, we have several sites around the island that are currently being talked about um, and states' assets that are uh, intended to be sold so that we can uh, bring about more um, sites. Uh, also, um, the Princess Elizabeth Hospital, there's, there's uh, talk now of um, a major development there to bring in uh, nurses' accommodation to free up some of the uh, more affordable um, accommodation around the island. Um, so, so some wheels are now beginning to turn by the, by the look of it, but um, how problematic is our current situation historically? You've been in the business for, what, about 30 years now? Um, you know, has it's it, not that long, but quite a long time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, has, has it, uh, is this the worst you've seen it in terms of the, um, demand outstripping supply? Certainly the worst I've seen it. I think colleagues who have been around for 30 years do remember you know, times similar sort of uh, anecdotal stories of, you know, stock and people queuing up and, you know, we've, those stories of 20 viewings on a property in a day, they are true. They do, it, you know, it does happen. So it has happened in the past. Property markets are cyclical, you know, we, we, we should remember. So we perhaps should remember the 10 years sort of before this. I think we've had a bit of a perfect storm over the last couple of years and COVID has certainly contributed to that. Um, the difficulty is we do have a construction industry. We are vast numbers down in terms of people. A lot of people left during sort of COVID. So there's a real appetite, I think, to help and to get things done. 
but you know it's not going to happen overnight. But I think you touched on it briefly about the touch uh, about the drop in the ocean. So theoretically, we had 90 homes on the Katow site. There's talk of 150 apartments, I think, at, um, on the PH site. Then you're starting to get into some numbers that might make a bit of an impact. But I think the other thing as well is if you are doing joint ventures, I think my view on it is perhaps if you're looking at that and we are getting value, uh, realizing value out of that, then theoretically we should be making more money or the state should be making more money to put into other schemes as well. So it's going to take time, but I think there are opportunities. And among those opportunities, uh, Deputy Kazantzva Miller, we've got um, uh, talk also more recently, and it was mentioned in the last states meeting, about um, finding space within St Peterport, your parish, um, for by... by um, relaxing rules around enabling uh, conversion of sort of you know, um, space above retail and that sort of thing. Um, do you see that as being a, a, a significant part of the solution to this ongoing problem? I think there are so many benefits of uh, reg- re- well building more in, in town, regenerating some of the areas that have been identified like uh, Mill Street, Mansell Street, there are opportunities around Cornet uh, Street uh, and so on. So I think, you know, in terms of we are small islands, inevitably uh, uh, the way islands deal with the issue of limited space is they reclaim land and continue developing on reclaimed land. If you look, for example, in, at Singapore, and I used to live there for a couple of years uh, I think it's about 30 if not now 35-40% reclaimed land now we haven't really done that and so because and I, I don't see us really anytime probably soon uh, <laughs> thinking about reclaiming land so- projects. Sounds like an expensive business yeah. and the seas yeah. are rising. So. Exactly so so I think we have to deal with the very fine constraints of our islands and uh, uh, probably we all love the island for what it is it's that balance between the nature, the open space, the old cliffs, and the uh, and uh, and the, the urbanization part. And so, if you look at overall trends around the world, urbanization is, incre- is is increasing. You know, more people are moving into towns. The density of towns is increasing. And I think we have a real opportunity to do more with our uh, with our um, main centers, which is which is uh, Saint Petersport, but also the bridge. So I do think we have a real opportunity. To to do more in St. Petersport. And actually, if you look at where uh, the majority of development takes place, St. Petersport actually takes the bulk of it. Uh, and But also, let's not forget uh, the bridge. And I think that is the really the lost opportunity of the moment. Nothing really has been done uh, in the bridge, uh, St. Samson's main centre area. Uh, Lille's Yard we're talking about. Um, we're what talk- is the situation at Lille's Yard at the moment? I don't know, really. It's not within my, uh, my, my the committees I'm aware of. It's a PNR, uh, again, issue. So I think perhaps a question to, to colleagues there. But... Um, we're supposed to receive a, um, a, a policy letter with regards to the setting up of a regeneration and development board, which will touch the seafront. I don't know if Lille's Yard might be included in that as well. But So yes, I would say huge opportunities. We should be regenerating uh, the main centres more. But I would also add the caveat. I think it's it's very easy to keep building, building, building. And so, for example, the Petronieri Road, there is a development framework uh, proposing potentially uh, development of, of uh, buildings there. But I think we need to balance it with improving public amenity 
even in, in areas which are built up, even in town. So I would actually, and this is a really uh, perhaps the first time I'm talking about it, I would like uh, to have a call for more public amenity uh, around uh, the islands, for more green, green spaces. They could be small green spaces or small community spaces in uh, developed areas, because those kind of spaces, community spaces, green spaces, playgrounds, whatever it is around schools or beyond, are those key hubs that really enhance quality of life. So that when you're walking from your house, maybe in St. Peterport, into town to work, you don't have to go through highly congested streets, you know, small pavements. I think we need to build more. There's clearly demand for that, but we really have to balance it with improving uh, amenity and infrastructure. Public. And how do you, as, as a member of um, the DPA, go about uh, encouraging that to happen? That's one of the projects I'm really keen to work on. So uh, on one side, I've already been championing relaxing restrictions around growing and the use of agricultural lands for agricultural purposes. Obviously, that's not specifically towns, but overall around because I feel there's demand from the community to, to do growing. And that's what agricultural land is supposed to to be for, right? Uh, growing and doing agriculture. And so I've already been championing uh, that and that's been successful through the relaxation of exemptions uh, and restrictions on what you can do on domestic curtilage land and agricultural land with regards to growing animal shelters, chicken coops and so on. And I'm really keen, um, we, we've we introduced policies around uh, loss of domestic, uh, uh, loss of agricultural space to domestic uh, curtilage as well, because I think it's important that we preserve uh, green spaces. They're not just converted into large uh, domestic curtilage uh, spaces. But I'm really keen to look into doing more around, can we start designating more spaces to become small parks, community gardens, and so on. And that's something uh, I'm going to be working on with colleagues. Okay, and you began that uh, answer with, with uh, talking about Petronary Road. So uh, how does this look? Do you, are you suggesting um, that there can be a housing development there that incorporates some form of uh, amenity space, or are you rather suggesting that that entire space should instead be designated as some kind of amenity space? I would love to see... Uh, part of that space being designated to a park or community garden that can be used not only by the residents but actually by the wider community that can improve the the issues with the traffic congestion and the small the roads route Thomas I think so I would like to see uh, development being mixed with amenity which can be used by residents and the neighbors and I think the, the problem with development in your backyard is that it takes away from you right it's it's natural but if with development we can give something to neighbors that actually it improves their amenity that's the kind of development i think we should be looking uh, going forward and so andre when you have customers coming to you um, to view a place how high on their agenda of, of uh, considerations is this idea of you know what there is around the location of this particular property? I mean, how much is the property itself, and how much are they thinking about uh, amenities that we've discussed there? Yeah, the p people want outside space. I think possibly um, for most people, it's. Uh, I think the trend has moved to of less importance having a big, big kind of garden. Obviously, there are some people who still like that, but still to have that little bit of outside space. There's a couple of really cracking schemes in town that have been done over the last few years. One um, opposite the 
um, post office in the wrong, where it was on a site and there was about an acre behind it and they couldn't build on the, on the land behind it. Uh, but everyone within that, so you had a mix. I think there's some four-bedroom homes there, some apartments and some two-bedroom places. Uh, they all had their own little bit of amenity space, but they all had communal ownership of the area behind. So you've got these fantastic trees there, a real kind of landscape, uh, a biodiverse landscape, and absolutely fantastic. And you, you would never know it's there. But planning obviously offered a level of protection there, which I think we'd all welcome. The argument would be, well, wouldn't it be great if that was open to you know more people to, to enjoy? Okay, but that was a private scheme. But if we're looking at private public schemes, GHA, those kind of things, then that could be opened up. I could see that and welcome that. There's even a really good example of Stanley Road where they've done that, where a small crescent development of 11 two-bedroom homes with a folk everyone gets a little bit of amenity space you've got enough time to sit out uh, sorry enough space to sit outside you know have your barbecue but the focal point is a communal garden and a good size one um, which the crescent, crescent sort of wraps around really interesting how you can do that in a built-up area so I can see I can see demand for that and I can see how that works because the proof is out there in those schemes. We have traditionally a very inefficient way of development actually. First we've gone through ribbon development so we actually have huge amount of green spaces behind housing which actually is not accessible not being used. We don't have a right of way through fields so community actually cannot use that green space and also having large gardens or medium-sized gardens is actually is also inefficient from a space perspective. What instead of uh, large gardens. You, we invested or, uh, into building better community spaces that could be used by the residents or by public in general, which will have more amenity, which might have even you know swimming pools. You know, if you look in uh, developments for in countries like Spain, uh, etc., the, the developments are often around those community spaces that then can be used uh, by you know by the residents and beyond. Do people generally want to share their swimming pools, though? I wonder. I mean, not everyone can afford one, clearly. And when, when you're talking about um, uh, large garden spaces, can you define that? I mean, you know, what, what is considered to be a large garden as opposed to an adequate garden, as we heard described? Yeah, I, th I think I think what we're trying to talk about here is perhaps we could come. I think there's different ways of doing development. There's clearly demands across, uh, as Andre was saying, across the whole market in terms of the need for affordable housing, but also uh, across the spectrum. And I think if we could come up with perhaps new ideas of how we could do development, I think there's an opportunity for improvement, which will tick the boxes not just for those who's you know who are getting those houses, but also actually for the neighbourhood and the wider community. I think that's I guess, the, the point I'm trying to make. There, there is an urgency about this, isn't there? Because, I mean, one of the big looming threats that we're told we have at the moment is the, is the um, demographic time bomb, as it used to be referred to. The tax review has been set up to uh, try to address this. Um, and one of the problems there is that we don't have enough young people coming through to be the taxpayers of the future. Um, so we need to attract sort of families to the, to the island. We need the space for them to be here. But the opposite is happening because of this housing issue. We're actually hearing about local families actually choosing to move away. Um, and so they were losing the taxpayers of the future. Do you, do you see that you're sort of at the coalface of this? 
Uh, absolutely. I'm actually working, uh, co-leading the, the what, what is called the Skills uh, Guernsey or the Human Capital Development Strategy Initiative with uh, Deputy Haskins, so it's Economic Development and the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture, basically. Uh, and it's, 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 you know, really the first time we're uh, really looking uh, holistically at what is um, our human capital. It's a key asset, but actually we've never, as an island, and to be honest, it's an emerging discipline around the world, actually understanding what is human capital, what is the value of it, and what are the, the, the policy levers a government can have to influence uh, human capital and skills, basically. And so, absolutely, there are so many different le uh, levers from uh, overall population and immigration levels, but more importantly, uh, how economically active the population is, because actually if we look at uh, how active um, our population is, we have gaps, you know, for example, women drop out of uh, employment and that gaps increases with age because perhaps of child, uh, uh, child caring or caring responsibilities or other reasons. Uh, perhaps people with disabilities don't have as much access to employment opportunities and this is what discrimination legislation is trying to solve. Or elderly people, you know, with, there is the retirement age potentially and with the uh, us all living healthier lives, there is an increasing proportion of population who may be economically inactive, but could be. And it could be good for them on all sorts of reasons, economically, socially, mentally. And so we are looking exactly at all of those um, levers we might have as a government, but as a community to make sure we have a healthy and sustainable population. And I, and I don't think it's just about increasing the numbers because that's not sustainable. And all other countries in the world, to be honest, will be facing similar problems. We live, we live longer, healthier, birth rates are reducing. So we have to be able to find a sustainable way of, of sorting it. And also there are big trends in terms of digitization, automation of certain jobs. There's lots of changes in the employment market. So it's quite a, it's, it's a very exciting project, but a very challenging project. So I think I would say, yes, absolutely, we are facing those problems. I would say we, we have to keep much better track of our young uh, kids and adults who leave the island. I, I would like perhaps for us to see some kind of Guernsey alumni uh, portal to be formed so that we can keep track. You can be part of it. You can see what's happening in Guernsey. You, you might be incentivized to come back. I think we have to have much better handle of young uh, you know, children, adults leaving the islands and incentivizing them to come back. I think we should support families more with young children so that they actually, it's a huge burden to have children. It's a huge cost. Uh, it's a huge cost in terms of uh, also parents' ability to work. I think we should be supporting families much more. Um, I think we should be supporting people with disabilities to actually be more uh, economically, socially active. And I think there's a huge opportunity for uh, people in their silver years to actually be much more, more active um, economically. That's quite a list of reprioritizations. <laughs> are, yes. are you optimistic that all this can be achieved in the rest of this state's term? I think we need. Well, I think we need to prioritize where we can make uh, the biggest difference. There will be lower lower hanging fruits, uh, and it's not something. It's not a problem you just solve. It's something you have to keep in mind. I, I, I think those will be consistent problems 
over the course of decades. It's not something just for one political term. I think those are the key big picture thinking we have to be on top of. And, and Andre, what do you see on the island in terms of this sort of pattern of, of um, you know, people considering actually moving off away from the island or, or the people coming onto the island, uh, the, the flow in and out? Yeah, I have. Uh, you know, we do see it, and uh, actually, I have seen it at even what I would say at the, the higher ends of the kind of market as well, where people haven't found it, which, which is a, a concern. It's a concern, frankly, of anyone's uh, thinking of leaving. It's always a you know a shame when people feel they've reached that sort of point. But people who you know looking for even sort of bigger homes haven't found what they want, starting to look kind of elsewhere. Uh, you know it all starts becoming an issue on tax burden and, uh, you know, for everyone else. But talking about what Sasha said, you know, historically and culturally, the island is entrepreneurial in nature. It always has been. It's always been able to reinvent itself in many ways. So um, you look at, we were a trading post, we've been growers, we've had the finance industry, so many different facets. And I think if government can help sort of prime the pump and tap into that, there are massive opportunities there, I think. Um, But it's, well, you've probably got to find out the information first um, and somehow implement skills and reskilling and up, up, you know, training moving from other industries as things change as well. So, again, there's still opportunities. It's the time. It's the time these, you know, uh, these things kind of take. But like I said, it's disappointing when people feel that they haven't got options on the island. And I think we want to encourage the states to do everything they can to you know, facilitate people changing here and, and keeping in touch as well. They're gone. It's almost like, you know, if they were all sort of clients or you were a bank and suddenly, you know, they disappeared. It was something like they were going, you'd be up in arms. But these are our people. These are our loved ones. These are people who have, you know, lived on the island all their life. We should be doing more. Um, and yes, it's very simple to say it's housing. They can't afford it. But there are other elements to that as well that I'm sure we can do to help them. So we shouldn't be relying on this idea that, you know, I think in the book of Ebenezer LePage, doesn't he say something along the lines of everyone's desperate to get away and then once they're gone, they're breaking their hearts to come back. A lot of people will return eventually, but we can't rely on that. Well, you we? came back. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did come back. <laughs> you know, they, we've got this saying, haven't we? Everyone comes back eventually. But the worry is when they don't come back... You know, I think a lot of people, let's say perhaps when they go to university, for example, or even people when they're 18, they go off and experience, they go travelling and they go and experience, you know, somewhere else. We always said, oh, they'll come back when they've kind of got kids. But what happens when they don't start coming back? They're, they're 35, they're 40. They're not, what well, they're approaching the peak of their, their earning power. That's got to be a real kind of concern if we're going to cease to attract those people to come back. I think people are... In some ways, if people are going away and they're getting more experience, they are they can come back with ideas, they can start businesses, all those kind of things, or be key people within, you know, be it within sort of medical or anything like that. That, that you know, um, it's hugely important to try and get them back. Um, we've got to be careful. We've got to be mindful. We're not losing those people as well. It's horrible when we're losing sort of younger people. We've got to about think about those people who are you know coming back and, and may not want to come back because of the challenges we've got.
And uh, one of the things that we mentioned there, Deputy uh, Kazantsova Miller, about the um, making Guernsey an attractive place to entice people back to is digitisation you were talking about there. Um, can I ask you something very specific about the fibre rollout? Because this was discussed, and you're, obviously this is with your uh, economic development hat on. Um, I wrote about it in today's edition of the paper, actually, um, at the Scrutiny Management Committee hearing. Um, it appeared that policy and resources were under the impression that the uh, the plans as to which part of the island, which little pocket gets their fibre rollout at which point in the five-year process, um, have obviously been seen by them, and they thought, they were in the public domain. Turns out they're not. It seems as though Shaw are very unwilling to uh, give us this information. D do you, as a member of economic development, feel that this information should be in the public domain? Um, I, I have seen kind of a very high-level uh, strategy in terms of uh, rollout uh, in terms of parishes uh, at a very high level. So perhaps which parish might where might we start first? But I think uh, the overall also strategies uh, is is there might be pockets of work that are prioritized for whatever reasons, for usually logistical, you know, operational reasons that you might say, you know, yes, we are prioritizing parish A, but actually there's pockets of work we can do in, you know, parish B and C because of whatever reasons. And so I think, uh, I think perhaps that's, uh, and, and that, that will become less predictable. And so I think, um, sure, we'll try to follow the, the most appropriate strategy. And so I think, uh, it's, it's impossible at this stage to give a very detailed, um, in terms of managing expectations, to give an actually detailed rollout plan because it might change in terms of the actual specific streets and houses. And so I think in terms of managing expectations, I think it's probably better uh, manage them in the way they think f appropriately fits right now. They might choose to publish detailed plans later. I don't know. But there's no pressure from economic development onshore to release any of this detail. I mean, you were talking about managing expectations there, and I can well understand. I mean, if I was in charge of Shaw's yeah. PR, I'd think, well, I don't want to make promises, you know, under-promise, over-deliver and all that. But um, a, uh, Deputy Adrian Gabriel was making the point that businesses and indeed residents want to know when their roads are going to be dug up, when uh, upheaval is going to come to them, um, even if it's only a couple of months in advance. So, you know, people want some information about when this is going to be rolled out to them. Yeah, so I think... Um I think it's important. This contract has been in terms of a grant from government to accelerate uh, the rollout. We, you know, we're not operationally uh, responsible for obviously the rollout, so we have to trust the partner to deliver the best plan to fit that contract, which is obviously within five years to make sure we we cover the island. I think in terms of uh, priorities, business districts, as I understand, are already wired up, so largely businesses should not be affected because they have, should have access in you know main centers local centers etc access to fiber it's really obviously the households but as I, as I explained before I think at this stage uh, I, I can see the reasoning why it's not appropriate to release a detailed rollout plan but I wouldn't be surprised we'll see how it goes and you know we can always suggest that we think uh, more detailed communication is is reasonable, but we trust we need to trust the partner to deliver as they see best fit. Well, hopefully they'll roll it out in the north first, because I'm sure they probably get a better signal in the higher parishes. <laughs> but who knows? Um, well, thanks to you both. I, I just want to uh, end. We ought to think about wrapping things up there. Um, can I just end by asking you, because this is the first uh, politics podcast of the year, um, what are you uh, looking forward to most in 2022? 
Deputy Kazans for Miller. Looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> or what, perhaps, what, are your, what are your hopes? Perhaps? My hopes. Mm. Um, I mean, the really big, I guess, item for the states this year is the tax review. I think we obviously had the first debate. Uh, the, the assembly gave lots of uh, comments and suggestions, um, and we've already had a number of uh, presentations back. But it does feel to me that the subject is squarely on, and I think in today's press there was an article uh, that it is a binary choice between a GST and tax. And I think uh, it just signals, I'm not sure what the, the, the Policy and Resource Committee have listened to really in terms of the debate. So uh, I, I think uh, the debate is more complex than that. We need to take into account uh, more factors. Uh, I would probably say corporate taxation it need, cannot be disregarded. I think uh, questions about population levels and everything to do with this, the skills strategy actually will have big influence on population projections. So I think that's probably the biggest debate uh, of the year, but it feels like it's already been framed in terms of we're just bringing GST. And I think we need to have a wider conversation on that. Uh, thanks for that. Only a politician could answer what, what are you most looking forward to in 2022 with the tax review, I suspect. But thank you for, I do appreciate that answer. Uh, Andre? Well, it would be nice probably from an outsider to see um, our friends in the States perhaps working together a bit more collaboratively on things. Um, it seems certainly that's come out recently, there seems to be perhaps a little bit of a lack of communication. Uh, I think people, uh, some people being surprised at decisions sort of being made and not being privy to those, which I thought was a little bit kind of surprising. Because actually, um, there are some pretty good kind of good ideas out there and the good things that can happen, but I think it's probably nice to know, you know, when they are sort of happening as well. So I think probably from the outside, just seeing, and this is probably wishful thinking, perhaps our friends in the States just working a little bit more kind of harmony and, you know, working closer together and just perhaps losing some of the... Um, personality kind of politics, but that is wishful thinking, perhaps. Well, we, we all say <laughs> amen to that. Um, Deputy Sasha Kazantsova Miller and Andre Austin, thank you very much for being our, our guests on this uh, first politics podcast of the year. And um, stay on this feed for uh, some six minute states coming up at the uh, next states meeting, which isn't far away. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.